This is Unicorn Builders, where we tell the untold stories of the founders who've defied the odds and built billion-dollar companies. Here's your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines.io. Now, let's jump straight into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Arvind Jain, CEO of Glean and a serial unicorn builder. Arvind, thanks for chatting with me today. Thank you for having me. Not a problem. So I see you spent a decade at Google starting in 2003. So I'd love to start there. Take us back. What was it like at Google back in the early 2000s? Google was one of the most unique companies that it would been part of as an employee. It was sort of, it almost felt like a playground for engineers. Like you come in and nobody tells you what to do. And as a technologist, you see like, you know, like the product that Google works on, there is large amounts of data, lots of compute and, and like it's basically you get to do whatever you want. And that was sort of like yeah, the most incredible part of me, like, you know, coming from like my previous jobs where I, I was always told that, hey, go and work on this, you know, this technology or, or, you know, go and work on this bug. You know, here, like it was more like I was just left on my own, you know, and that was sort of like, you know, the really amazing part of Google. Like it was like the innovation was driven by like just letting, you know, the, the best engineers in the world, you know, just do whatever they want to do. Do you remember IPO day? I see the IPO was in 2004. So that would have been shortly after you joined. Yeah, it was like, I think after like about like eight or nine months. And I don't really remember the day itself, <laughs> you know, that much. I think the there was actually like obviously a lot of anticipation in those days because Google was actually, I think, like a IPO that happened after like a big lull in tech. Was it obvious back then that the company would be, you know, what it is today? I was looking online just trying to see, you know, what the numbers were back then. And on IPO day, it was valued at around $23 billion. Obviously, today it's at, I think, over a trillion dollars. Was it obvious back then that Google was going to be as successful as it is? It was, it was not obvious to me, for sure. And I don't think it was obvious to anyone. In fact, like, you know, I remember like at Google, like before the IPO, like the company would actually help organize like all of these investing classes and where they will sort of talk about the merits of diversification. And in fact, the company would encourage, you know, I think not like it was not, I guess, officially the company, but whoever was actually, you know, bringing all these financial advisors to talk to employees, they were all advising us to sell Google stock <laughs> in some sense and like, you know, diversify and be responsible and like not put, not put all of your eggs in one basket. But like, you know, just to think about, I think like the kind of success that Google has actually achieved. Like, you remember, there was no trillion dollar company at that time. Forget about Google. Like, you know, there's like Apple, Microsoft, nobody was actually anywhere close to those kind of, you know, valuations. And nobody could have sort of seen like, you know, how, like how much impact, like, you know, Google was going to have. Like, you know, we were largely one part of company at that time. It was search. And now if you look at Google, like, you know, it does everything that you can imagine. So no, like, I don't think anybody, any one of us saw it. Now, after 11 years in 2014, you left to found Rubrik. I don't want to spend too much time talking about Rubrik. I really want to get into Glean, but he just tell us a little bit about that journey. What was that like leaving behind your career at Google? Was that a hard decision to make? And then what was it like founding Rubrik? Google almost felt like a family to me, you know, when I was like, you know, after 11 years and it was very, very hard for me, like very difficult for me to sort of even imagine that like I could actually leave that and do something else. But it was an exciting opportunity ahead of me. Like it was like you know, a couple of my friends like who wanted to start, you know, this company and solve an important problem. So with a lot of, I guess, hesitation, I made that move. You know, when I made that move, like, you know, it was sort of feeling that, yes, like, you know, we're going to go and try, you know, an attempt to build a startup. And if it doesn't work, then I'm actually going to come back. 
So that's sort of like I had to sort of, that was the way I convinced myself that yes, I can actually go and, you know, try and building a startup because I, I knew that, like, you know, I always have a home, you know, to come back to. And can you give us an idea of the scale that Rubrik's operating at just so we can understand, you know, just how big the company became? Yeah, so Rubrik now like publicly announced that, you know, it does more than half a billion dollars in, you know, ARR in revenue, like, you know, every year the company has, you know, has a few thousand people. So definitely has grown a lot in the, like, you know, the nine years of its existence. And as I mentioned there in the intro, you are a serial unicorn builder and, and that's what this show is all about. So I want to try to unpack, what do you think your superpower is? You know, what is it that allows you to build companies that reach this level of scale, not just once, but two times so far in your career? And I'm sure there's probably some others that could come later on. What do you think you've gotten right? And you know, what is that superpower? Well, I mean, I think before the superpower, I would just say that I think luck plays a bigger role than, you know, in, in, in actually sort of achieving success in some ways. And so I think we've been, you know, very fortunate, very lucky, like, you know, both with Rubrik and now with Clean. You know, when we started Clean, we were solving a problem which, you know, felt important to us, but nobody was buying a product like this. Nobody had budgets for it. So, you know, we went through like, you know, our, our journey of, like having to convince customers and build up the business like at a, at a, you know, slowly, but like there've been multiple trends, you know, that sort of have gone our way, like, especially like, you know, the AI trend now, which is like actually brought us into this place now where like we spend a large amount of time building this great search technology for businesses. And now this has become sort of the cornerstone or the foundation for generative AI. And so now suddenly like, you know, we find finding ourselves in a place where everybody wants this product. And like we have it, you know, to go and sell it to them. But I would say like, you know, one thing maybe like, since, you know, the question was about my superpower, like I would just say that like one thing which I have actually always, you know, done in my career, like whether it's, a, you know, about starting a company or actually just joining a company, you know, that I want to be an engineer at. I've actually always thought in very simple terms. I prefer, like I go to companies that are solving a problem that I can understand. A problem that is sort of obvious that a lot of people face. And I don't, I don't think too much about that. Hey, you know, is this company, you know, going to win in this market or not? Like, you know, typically just look for a large problem statement and capable people, like, you know, who I see are solving that problem. And then that's the approach that we've also chosen, like, you know, with my own startups is like the reason why we are working on Glean is because, you know, we saw that everybody who works today faces this problem of not being able to tap into and find the information that they need that lives within their company very fundamental problem that everybody who I know faces. And yet, like, you know, this is a problem that was not being solved. So we, like, you know, you start with a problem like that and then you assemble a team, like, you know, folks who are really passionate about solving that problem and actually have the capability to solve that problem. And generally, like, you know, I feel like, you know, that is all it takes. And then you hope to get a little bit lucky and that allows you to build, build, build like a great product and a great company. I think I read online in one of your interviews that workers say 25% of their time is spent searching for stuff while they're at work. So it seems like it's an obvious problem. It seems like this is a big, big problem. Why is it so hard to solve this problem? So search is actually a extraordinarily hard problem to solve. Part of it is like because your expectation is, is sort of like nothing short of magic. Like imagine this, like, you know, you can go to Google and you can just type in like, you know, one or two words, like, you know, trying to look for, you're trying to look for something or get an answer to something. And just type in like, you know, one or two words, like not really tell much, you know, to Google, like, you know, what your intention is, what the context is. And like, you know, Google magically sort of comes back and gives you the right information or answer or points you to the right sort of like, you know, uh, page that has answered to your question. 
And so sort of like, you know, it's, it's magic that you have to go and build. And it is hard, like, you know, the search requires a lot of, like, you know, the technology stack is actually very, very broad and it requires a lot of R&D, you know, that needs to happen. And so that's why, like, it's been, like, you know, incredibly hard to sort of build this product, especially for enterprises. You know, that's one of the areas that Google did not focus, focus on. And there were, like, there have been attempts in the past, but the problem was just, like, you know, required too much into R&D investment. And also the environment, like, you know, was not actually conducive. Like, you know, those, I would say that, like, you know, rewind back, you know, to five or six years, you couldn't build a good product in search. Like the technology environments, you know, the technology stack, you know, that was just not conducive for startups to go and build a product like this. So you had to wait for the right moment. And I think that for us, you know, that was sort of our foresight that we saw that moment sort of happen, like in 2019 when we started. And so there's a lot of advances in technology that, allow us to sort of now go and build a great product today that could have been built like, you know, 10 years back. In November 2022, that was obviously a big moment in AI. And it feels like to me, at least, that's when AI really became mainstream. It became obvious. You know, everyone started talking about it. It was, you know, everywhere you looked, all you could see was generative AI. What was it like before November 2022? Did you ever have any periods of time where you were sitting there trying to educate the market about you know, the potential of AI and the power of AI and it just wasn't resonating? You know, what was that period like before that? We actually were never trying to tell people that hey, AI is the view of the future. I think like the industry does a pretty good job even doing that. For us, like you know, our focus was search and trying to convince people that making it easy for people to find the information that they need to do their job that is important and invest in actually like you know a good search product so that's what we were focused on but we were actually seeing the trends of ai already in fact when we started in 2019 the precursor to these large language models that have now become you know so popular and they were already sort of out there like you know we were actually using large language models to make our product better you know, starting in 2019, you know, when we started the company. And so we've sort of seen like how these models have actually become more and more powerful and it has allowed us to build much more powerful search experience. You know, sort of think of it like more like if you compare Google and not ChatGPT, you know that ChatGPT can actually understand you better. It can also sort of actually go one step further and take, you know, the right sort of content and actually summarize that content for you and give you precise answers. So there is a transition, like, you know, we were actually on that journey, like over the last four and a half years of, you know, where we were able to make our product better every every year with the advances, you know, that were happening in AI. But we were not actually focused on, you know, telling the world that, hey, this AI is great and, and therefore you should invest in AI because that's a little bit of a, you know, too broad of a statement. Like as a business, we need to focus on what we sell. So we sell the search products. So like, you know, all of our energy would go into telling people why investing in a great search product was the right thing to do. When I look on the website today, I do see a lot talking about generative AI, and it seems like that's a big part of the positioning now. It sounds like that may have come then after November 2022. So is the, the goal there and the idea there is you're, you're trying to capture that demand for people who are interested in generative AI? Well, actually, there was a big moment in 2022 when the language models actually advanced sufficiently enough that you could now bring like the work of these models in front of our users. So before 2022, we were using these models behind the scenes to make search better. When you come and ask for a question, we would actually be using these models to help like surface the best results on the top of our search results page. But we could actually use AI to actually synthesize and generate answers, you know, for our users because we're not good enough. 
But when when that happened, when that transition happened in last year, we incorporated these you know new advances, and now our product can actually do these kind of things. You know, it can actually understand the users' questions much better. It can also also go one step further and not just show you like you know the pointers to the to the right information, but actually like read that information and actually give the exact precise answer to the question that you're looking for. So generative AI actually helped made our product actually better. And so that's why you're seeing this on on our website. Like the idea is to actually tell people that hey, we made our product so much better by leveraging generative AI. Have you seen an increase in competition then as well? We've absolutely seen like a lot of lot more people interested in this. Like, you know, before, like I think for the last four and a half years, we almost always felt that we were the only company in the world that was trying to actually solve the search problem in the enterprise. And now I think there are hundreds of like companies, you know, just coming in because I think it, this has captured people's imagination now. Like everybody saw Chat GPT and now they can see that, hey, if I had a product like that in the enterprise, you know, something that can work over all of my company knowledge and answer all the questions that I had. I think this has like become obvious to people that would have such a big productivity impact, dramatic sort of boost, you know, that you can give to, you know, productivity within the enterprise. So there's big demand now. People actually want this product and therefore it's also convincing a lot of people to go start companies in this space. Can you tell us about the first early enterprise customers that you were able to land? That's obviously something that every B2B founder struggles with in the early days. So what did you do to get those deals across the line? So first thing, you know, that we did was we instead of like working with people who we know, we actually chose a different strategy and we would actually do cold outreach on LinkedIn to talk to uh, CIOs across like, you know, different companies. And we actually picked the technology vertical as the first one, you know, that's the most familiar for tech entrepreneurs like me, like, you know, we sort of understand those companies, how they work. So we just, you know, we would just connect with CIOs at these tech companies and sort of tell them that, hey, this is the problem we're solving. Does it make sense? Like give us some feedback. And that's sort of how you start to, Build that early relationships and, you know, where you're not yet selling them the product, you're just trying to actually learn from them, like what they would need, like, you know, which would sort of convince them to buy the product in the future. And that's how we started. So, and so we worked with a few companies, you know, got like sort of a lot of guidance and feedback from those like you know, CTOs and CIOs. And then as we built the product, like, you know, they were, since, you know, we sort of taking their feedback, they wanted to actually now try out the product and they would try it out. We would let them use the product for free for some time. And like as and when it sort of became clear to them that this was adding value to them, then they would actually convert and become customers. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now back to today's episode. What's the market category here? Is it enterprise search? Is it knowledge management? Or is it a totally new market category? There is no good like market category for this. It's sort of a combination of the two. Because like in some sense, you know, this was a market creation play. When we were selling our product to companies like, let's say, Databricks or Okta, the, or Grammarly, like it was, it's not that, you know, they were actually buying some other product in this domain. All of our customers actually bought our product you know, for the very first time. This was the first product in this kind of a category that they purchased. But I guess you can call it like a blend of like search and enterprise knowledge management. That's what Glean is. Because enterprise search as a category is actually very broad. Like even companies that are selling 
a search product for e-commerce portals, even they call themselves enterprise search. So we are sort of more, or actually maybe the other uh, good way to put it, I can describe what Clean does. Clean is a workplace search and assistant product. So it's actually focused on making employees in a company more productive. What role do the analyst firms then like Gardner and Forrester have on the general go-to-market approach and the approach to creating this market? So I think especially with generative AI, I think these firms, like, you know, I, I'm not very familiar, but from like some brief conversations that I've had, I think everybody's thinking about like how to sort of map like all these new companies that are coming up, you know, in the Gen AI space. Like what's the best way to sort of categorize them? Like, you know, I think some Gen AI companies would go into existing product categories, but then there are quite a few new products, like for example, ours, where it doesn't necessarily fit into an existing product category. So I think we'll also see some new categories come up over time in, yeah, like, you know, from these firms. And it sounds like that's not something you're proactively engaged then. Is that correct? You're not actively trying to shape this category and make sure that the market category definition fits with your vision for the category? We are definitely working with these with the analyst firms. And as much as we can, we would like to inform and shape like how they think about the market and like how they map companies into different categories. So we have some active engagements, but I think this is still very, very early. And what about numbers today in terms of growth and adoption? Are there any numbers that you can share? Our business is growing quite rapidly. We've been growing 3x, you know, every year in terms of like customers and revenue. So the, we're seeing, you know, a huge demand for our product. You've raised $155 million to date. What have you learned about fundraising throughout this journey? That's a great question. I think fundraising is, I mean, it's a necessary evil in some sense. Like as a as an entrepreneur, I think at least I wish, like, you know, most people wish that they didn't have to do it. Like, you know, that money out of, you know, magically appeared. And so that you can focus on execution and, you know, building your company and building your product. But from a fundraising perspective, what works in my mind is like investors often look for big ideas. They look for big problems that are unsolved. And they look for people who they think are going to be able to solve those problems. And so that's sort of the most important aspects of like if somebody was figuring out they want to be an entrepreneur and they want to actually raise capital, like what are the first few steps they need to take? And so those steps would be number one, the find a problem that is large, that is meaningful, that actually needs to be solved. And today, you know, you feel like, you know, nobody has actually solved this, you know, the way it should be. And number two, like go and build the right team, like you know, people like with the right experience to go and solve that problem. And then that's the combination that you need to sort of get investors interested in your company. For early stage B2B founders who are planning on selling or building an enterprise product, how important do you think it is to be in Silicon Valley today? Being in Silicon Valley is actually very beneficial. Obviously, this is the place where you have the largest like number of investors. It's also a place where you will have both like the talent you know that you need you know to actually build your company, and also the demand as such. Like you know, like if you're building products you know for the tech industry, then there's no better place you know to be at than than Silicon Valley. So it it definitely helps. You know, this is I think Silicon Valley is still the center of like innovation in technology. It's hard for me to compare because like I've been in Silicon Valley for a long time and I absolutely feel like, you know, I benefit from being here because whenever we're thinking about, you know, starting a new product, new team, new company, you can always find the best people like in the world right here. 
and you know get the company started. Good to know Silicon Valley is not dying because that is the narrative that I see a lot in the media. Yeah, I think not so much now, but especially two years ago, you were seeing that you know people are moving to Miami, people are moving to Austin, but it definitely feels like Silicon Valley is uh, is back again, and it it seems to be thriving now. Absolutely. Now, I've read another article about you that said you had achieved unicorn status after eight months. So I want to talk just a little bit about your mindset when you were starting Glean. I know you've mentioned there that, you know, you like to start with a problem statement and, and that's really the mindset. But really behind the scenes there, is there like an intention in your mind to say, I'm going to build a big, massive company here? Like, does it surprise you that the company became worth a billion dollars so quickly? Or is that obvious for you that this was going to happen or somewhat obvious that this was going to happen? It is never obvious to me that, you know, we will succeed. I think I generally like, you know, the way, like I have an engineer's mindset and, you know, an engineer mindset, I think often, I guess, full of doubts and, you know, internal questioning of what is actually going to work versus not. And like you often think about all the things that can go wrong. Like, you know, any company that I've been part of, like it has never been obvious that, oh yeah, like, you know, in the future, we're going to achieve big success. But it's always clear in my mind that if we do a good job and if we get lucky, you know, we are working on a very large problem and we have a huge potential. And that's what I feel about Glean. Like even today, yes, you know, we have a high valuation, but I think that is also just a start. Like, you know, if you're able to actually really like actually achieve our mission and, you know, build that, you know, that general purpose assistant, you know, that we can bring to every worker in every company in the world and like help them become twice as much more, you know, productive. So we are working on a huge unsolved problem, you know, that will allow us to build one of the largest companies in the world. And, but it's not obvious that it's going to happen. We have to work hard towards it. Can you take us back to spring 2022 then when that $100 million round closed with Sequoia? What was going on inside your head, you know, the day you got those docs that it was a done deal, it was going to be a billion dollar plus company. Was that a meaningful day for you at all? Or was that just another day and then it was immediately back to work? So, well, it was it was definitely a very meaningful day to have an investor like Sequoia sort of put that faith and you know belief in you. It gives you a lot of confidence, and it also means a lot. Like that was a big moment for all of us, you know, to sort of see the fruit of our labor and see that recognition like from the investors, and also, of course, like you know, get that capital, which sort of then allows us to further scale the company and and achieve like, you know, like greater success in the future. So that was, that was definitely a big moment. And I, I think like, although yes, it was back to work immediately, but I think, you know, like that feeling of euphoria, like, you know, stays with you and the company, like, you know, for good, you know, for some good, in a good amount of time. One thing I've learned from my about 40 conversations with the founders who built unicorns is they say that sometimes after these big fundraising events, it can be hard to keep the team humble and keep the team focused. And they almost get distracted by these splashy headlines. Was that a challenge for you and the team at all? I think we have had that challenge, you know, in pockets, I would say. Something that like I personally didn't catch on to myself, the we still sort of like nothing changed, like, you know, from a day-to-day operation perspective, you know, from, you know, in our company, for example, we didn't like, you know, suddenly get like a fancy office or sort of, you know, start to relax a little bit. Like, you know, we knew that, you know, like we caught the funding, but like we had a lot of work to do to, you know, keep building the product and and like keep building the business. So in that sense, like, you know, I didn't see it big, like, but like, off, like you know, occasionally, like, you know, I would have some of my team members sort of come and sort of tell me the importance of, I don't know, reiterating to the team 
that hey, like you know, we're we've not actually achieved success. You know, raising capital doesn't mean that you become successful. That's basically like a is just a vote of confidence, like in you from somebody who want you to sort of achieve that success in the future. So we see it a little bit, but I think like you know, given just like you know how we operate, I don't think that was a big problem for us. When I search your name, I just find success. So I, I read the stories about your first company. I read the stories about Queen today, and yeah, you know, everything just screams success. Are there any untold stories there about challenges that you experienced building Glean or Rubric that maybe haven't been told before or haven't been told very widely? Yeah, I mean, I don't think like, you know, we've actually really talked about the challenges, you know, that we face. Like we have a lot of challenges at Glean too. As the company grows, it becomes harder to sort of, you know, have that close relationship, you know, with everybody in the company and sort of keep everybody aligned and work on the same mission and actually like, you know, have everybody be happy in the company. Like, I feel like, you know, we face some of these struggles that glean today as well. Like, you know, we have certain policies and like the majority of the company, hopefully like, you know, like, like our policies, but then are, then there are folks like, you know, who don't. And like, you know, sort of the hard thing is how do you actually go and build that connection with them to sort of explain and, and like, you know, get that alignment from them. So you know, there are a lot of struggles, you know, there are a lot of challenges. And I think often, as you said, like, you know, like, you know, when we talk about things, you know, we sort of focus more on what went well and and not sort of like, you know, what were some of the challenges that we had to solve. What's top of mind for you in terms of current challenges? Like what's keeping you up at night right now? Number one for us is we have an incredible product today. Clean is the chat GPT for your enterprise. Like that actually can answer questions using all of your company knowledge. So we have a very unique product. We're the only company in the world that has it. And the most interesting thing is that every enterprise in the world today wants this product. And so that's a big, you know, big opportunity for us. But I feel like, you know, we're not, we're not set up to actually leverage, you know, that advantage that we have in our product, like, you know, being ahead of, you know, competition or future competition. So that's sort of what is like, has me most worried is, like, how do we take this really amazing foundation, like, you know, great product, great team, you know, great sort of customers and fantastic demand for our product. And how do we execute, you know, correctly? How do we sort of build the team the right way? How do we get the, the right leadership in place for all the different things that need to happen in the company? And like all of us have to sort of do that. We're all learning on the job. This is the first time. I guess it's always the first time whenever you start a new company, like it's always different from anything that you've done before. And so we're sort of learning and we have to sort of make sure that, you know, we don't mess up, you know, this, you know, great opportunity that we have. So that's, that's sort of like, you know, what I'm often thinking about and, and worried about. Based on the company building journey so far, let's imagine you were starting again today from scratch. What would be the number one piece of advice that you'd give to yourself? Let's say that, you know, I already know that this is the product I want to build. This is a company I want to build. The most important things are, for me, are like just keeping focus on that problem, keeping the confidence that when you are, you know, spend the time validating that this is the problem that you want to solve, like staying on the course, regardless of what, like, you know, everybody in the world is going to tell you. Because I think part of like, you know, why companies struggle is when the founders or people who are building the product, you know, they sort of constantly doubt themselves. They have self-doubt and they will sort of keep changing their direction of the product. And, and I feel like, you know, that's sort of like, that is one of the things that I think is my number one advice to all those engineers out there is 
when you identify a problem to solve on, like, you know, like stay on that problem, like there's a thousand reasons why it may not work, but that also, you know, there's a fundamental reason that, you know, you decided, wanted to start it. And so if you can persist, you know, that's that what is going to create success for you. Final question, since I know we're up on time. What's the next three to five years going to look like for you? We expect the company to grow significantly in the next three to five years. Like from a product perspective, there's a long journey like ahead of us. Like we envision that in, in the next five years, every worker in every company in the world is going to have this really amazing assistant that's going to actually help them with the job every day. An assistant, you know, that knows everything about your company and, you know, that has read every single piece of document that has been part of the conversation that you had, you know, that any two people in the company had. And armed with all of that knowledge and, you know, they're sitting next to you 24-7 and help you answer any questions that you have and, like, you know, hopefully also do, like, you know, half of the tasks that you need to do. And so that's sort of, like, you know, our vision for the future. Like, you know, we want to build a really smart assistant like that and bring it to every single person, you know, in the world who work. So with that sort of goal in mind, like you feel like, you know, there's, there is so much work that we need to, you know, do on technology. We have to grow the company, probably going to be like 10 times the size of what we are today or even more. And then build a strong, independent, standalone business. Amazing. Arvind, we are up on time, so we'll have to wrap here. Before we do, if there's any founders listening in who just want to follow along with your journey as you build and execute on this vision, where should they go? Yeah, I'm certainly active on LinkedIn. Like, you know, I do share a lot of my thoughts on company building or like, you know, the the current technologies like, you know, AI and like, you know, where where we're headed with the AI. So so yeah, so definitely check me out on on LinkedIn and also sort of visit clean.com and you know see you know what's the latest, you know, from us. Amazing. Arvind, thank you so much for taking the time. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I know the audience is going to as well. So really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Pat. All right. Keep in touch.